You're listening to Value Judgments. My name is Eric Matheson. Last year, Canadian Blood Services announced that it had partnered with a company to begin paying people for blood plasma in Canada. This change was great news for my guest today. For years, Peter Jaworski has been advocating for a payment model. In our conversation, we discuss the arguments for and against paying people for plasma, whether people should also be paid for blood, and why so much business ethics writing isn't helpful for business people. Here's the show. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Um, maybe we can start by you introducing yourself. Well, thanks very much for having me, Eric. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, I'm Peter Jaworski. I'm an associate teaching professor at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. Uh, I'm a Canadian, um, Polish by birth, though, complicated, uh, complicated personal story. Uh, I also teach one course. It's called Blood Feud. Uh, it's about the sort of feud between blood collecting organizations and plasma collecting organizations. I teach that at the University of Virginia School of Law. I would like to start with, uh, so you're called the plasma professor on Twitter. You've written lots of stuff about plasma. Plasma is your thing. How did you get into plasma? Like, what's the story with that? <laughs> um, right. So it's a little bit of a longer story, but it starts with bone marrow and ends up with plasma. So back in 2015, I was teaching MBA students. I teach MBA students at Georgetown University. And I had one student who started a company called Hemios. And the company was trying to pay people to donate bone marrow. This is legal in the United States. It's not legal, I think, anywhere else in the world. But you can get paid to donate bone marrow, uh, provided it's through a procedure called bone marrow apheresis. And this is what connects plasma to bone marrow. So he was trying to start this company, and the Department of Health and Human Services knocked on his door and said, hey, listen, we're going to change the regulations, which is within their purview. It's within their right even though there was a court case that decided it was legal to pay people for bone marrow as long as they do it through apheresis. They said that we're going to change the rules to make his business model illegal. All of their objections to his business model were ethical, like they were moral objections. This is going to be exploitative. It's going to be a range of moral objections. It's commodification, etc. So he came running to me, Doug is his name, and he said, professor, right, like help me. Um, and I said, yeah, I would love to. So I put a letter together that urged the Department of Health and Human Services not to change the law. That letter was signed by a number of famous people, including Peter Singer, the philosopher Peter Singer, uh, the Nobel Prize winning economist Alvin Roth signed on to that letter, and then a whole host of others um, signed on to that letter as well. I got a chance to read that letter to the Department of Health and Human Services, and then I also presented it at like a Senate Hill briefing. Uh, no actual senator showed up, but uh, senatorial staff were there. So that was kind of interesting. And to my surprise, the letter was effective and the department backed back down. They said they were not going to change the rules. Now, it was too late for my student, Doug Grant. Uh, his investors pulled out. They were all convinced that they were going to go through with this change in the regulations. And so there was no business here to speak of. So we won that case, but in the process of trying to figure out the details of bone marrow apheresis, I learned about plasmapheresis. And being a Canadian, I discovered that there was a controversy in Canada surrounding uh, paying people for plasma donations. Um, Ontario had banned it in 2014, and at the time in 2016, Alberta was considering it. They, 
they then went ahead and banned it in 2017, uh, followed by British Columbia in 2018. It took me a couple of years to become comfortable with the details of plasma donation, with the details of what the plasma therapies are used for, uh, with the various diseases and problems that confront that industry and some of the other details before I became uh, publicly involved. So it took two or three years, but since then I've been working on plasma. I mean, it is my primary research area. It's the thing that I think about every day, right? So it is. Well, that's how I got involved, Eric. Sorry about the long story. I guess to to dig into um, plasma and kind of the the state of things right now, maybe you can can you just paint a picture like like what is around the world? What is the kind of general um, situation in terms of plasma and how it's collected? Oh, great. Let me. Uh, here's the short story. Uh, American donors donate plasma for the world. That's sort of the short story. The longer story goes like this. 60 to 70% of the plasma used to manufacture plasma protein therapies, I'll explain that in a second, come from the United States of America, right? <clears throat> That's an enormous number, right? The remainder actually doesn't come from the other countries sort of equally. No, instead, there's an additional four countries that have a long history with compensating donors, uh, namely Germany, Austria, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. And along with the United States, those five countries together contribute 90% of the plasma used to make plasma protein therapies uh, around the world. The rest of the world contributes a paltry uh, 10%. That's about it, right? And the reason why, I mean, I don't think it's difficult to understand why I've already mentioned the fact that these five countries are the five countries that allow uh, compensation to donors or donor compensation for plasma donation. And I think that's basically the reason why. It's the, the singular most important reason explaining why these countries and not others uh, contribute so much to the global need for these uh, therapies. None of the other countries, not a single one of the other countries are self-sufficient. Not, not Italy, not France, not Spain, not Canada, not Australia, not New Zealand, not any of these other countries. None of them collect enough plasma to meet the needs of their domestic patients. And so they are required to turn to the global market. And when they turn to the global market, they are basically turning uh, to plasma supplied by American donors. Why should we worry about kind of the way things are now? Like there are lots of countries that have to import other stuff that we you know that we depend on. Um, and so why is it a problem that Canada, say, isn't producing enough plasma to meet its own domestic demand? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons. Most recently, I mean, look, uh, countries in the European Union and actually Canada and a number of others have taken plasma collection much more seriously than they have in the past. And the reason for that is the pandemic. What we saw during the pandemic is a 20% decrease in plasma donations in the United States, which meant a 20% decrease in the global supply of these therapies. That meant that provinces like Quebec, for example, just went, okay, well, we're just cutting 20% of outlays. So patients who rely on the therapies, I think we'll discuss the details of some of these therapies in a second, but patients who depend upon immunoglobulin, for example, they, they had 20% less access. 
uh, many healthcare systems weren't taking on new patients. This therapy is not like aspirin or something like that. If you need immunoglobulin, something like 50% of the people who rely on immunoglobulin rely on it in order to live. Like absent this therapy, they won't be able to survive. They won't be able to live. And the other 50% who rely on immunoglobulin, this therapy makes an enormous difference to the quality of their lives. It means they can leave their house, for example, which otherwise they might not be able uh, to do. So the pandemic demonstrated that there's a kind of danger associated with relying too much on one country. We also saw back in 19, I'm going to, I think 1998 it was, uh, the United Kingdom confronted um, uh, variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. And that caused them to shut down all domestic plasma collection for the manufacture of plasma protein therapies. And so they turned exclusively to the United States. So for a long period of time, in fact, until uh, the end of 2021, they were 100% dependent on plasma collected in the United States. So something like the pandemic, as well as something like a disease outbreak in one country, shows that it's a bit of a fragile system. And what you want is not dependence on one country. You don't want 100% self-sufficiency. I agree with Canadian Blood Services when they say that. What you want is to meet at least 50% of the domestic needs so that you can guarantee access to the patients for whom this therapy means life. It's a life or death kind of situation. Uh, but you also want regional self-sufficiency so that if any country has to shut down their plasma collection, we have other avenues and other ways of accessing that therapy. So that's a reason why we should care about the fact that the United States provides so much of it. Another reason is political. During the pandemic, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was some ship that Donald Trump turned around that had uh, uh, essential medical equipment, was on its way to Canada. We had a contract, it was signed. Uh, and then Donald Trump was like, nope, send that ship back. Well, look, uh, the United States has considered export restrictions on these therapies since at least 1998. I think in the, in the uh, Substack post that you had, you linked to a story that talked about, was it a senator or something in the United States in 1998, who openly mused about restricting exports of these therapies to other countries like Canada, right? Well, they've done that several times, and you can understand why. American patients sometimes have to go through shortages, even though American donors provide so much of the plasma used uh, around the world. So there's always the threat of a kind of political concern. Somebody is going to say, hey, look, we're going to stop exports or we're going to insist that we have 100% domestic self-sufficiency before we allow exports. So these are all considerations that play a role that explain why countries like Canada have become much more serious about collecting much more plasma. So, so let's do the medical background. I think you know everybody knows the importance of blood and blood donation. I think a lot fewer people know about plasma and the various things it's used for. So, can you just walk through um, some of the things you mentioned? A couple of the kind of uh, significant ones, but um, what's the uh, what's the scope of ways that plasma is used? Yeah, so we use plasma in basically two different ways. One is for transfusion. We sometimes take plasma and we transfuse patients with, uh, with plasma. 
Uh, we don't need plasma very much for that purpose. I think in Canada, something like 60 to 70,000 liters per year is all we need for transfusion. Um, the other use for plasma is there are these proteins found in our plasma, proteins like immunoglobulin, which is essentially just our antibodies. That's a fancy name for antibodies, uh, but also albumin, um, a variety of different clotting factors. So these are the things every time you bleed, um, you know, you start forming clots and it's these clotting factors that rush to the site and they help you, you know, if you're bleeding, they help stop the bleeding. Um, but also things like alpha-1 antitrypsin, C1 esterase, there, there's a range of these proteins. And what we can do with this plasma is we take it and then we uh, go through a process called fractionation where we isolate each of these individual proteins and turn them into uh, therapies. So some people who, you know, the most, um, here's one, you know, if you suffer from a variety of different um, uh, immune deficiency problems, so your, your immune system might be deficient in that it doesn't produce enough antibodies or produces antibodies that don't work or a variety of other sorts of problems like that. Then you would be reliant on immunoglobulin, the antibodies of thousands of other people who are pooled together, and then you get that. And then that way you have some kind of um, protection against the common cold even or something like that, right? Um, we use clotting factors for people who lack these, you know, they might lack factor eight, that's a popular one, or factor nine or one of the other factors. Uh, we give people those therapies so that their blood can clot. So people with hemophilia, for example, right? Our nice case in point, uh, von Willebrand disease is another one. Uh, they lack the von Willebrand factor, which we can isolate and, and give to these people. So these are the two different uses. And this use, the therapy use, is overwhelmingly what we need plasma for. And the volumes are enormous. We're talking about millions of liters of plasma that we need in order to meet the needs of, for example, Canadian patients, right? Th these are huge volumes and no country apart from the five that I mentioned. Uh, collects enough to meet their domestic need. Great. So, so right now, uh, I think I think New Zealand at one point for like a, a year or so um, did have enough just uh, through uh, volunteer donations. Um, no other country has been able to do that, um, and, and so uh, paying people is the the way to get the supply to go up. Yeah, New Zealand was self-sufficient back in 2014. And back then, New Zealand was the only country that was self-sufficient. I want to put a little bit of an asterisk or footnote on the case of New Zealand because New Zealand continues to this day to, in my opinion, underutilize immunoglobulin. Uh, if you compare how much immunoglobulin Australia uses per capita to New Zealand, the differences are so stark. Um, New Zealand uses something like 100 grams per thousand. Australia uses three times that at 310 grams per thousand. Uh, Canada uses about 231 grams per thousand. So New Zealand was self-sufficient, but they were also not using immunoglobulin as often or as frequently as Australia and others um, are using. But since that time, there has not been a single country that has met that need. Uh, so that's a sign that New Zealand right now that there are patients who could benefit from immunoglobulins but are not receiving it um, or other other cases where um, it's just not being offered. Is that the inference? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So um, 
one of the things that you recently published this report with the Niskanen Center, um, one of the things that stood out to me about that uh, in that report was that um, in addition to just getting more plasma overall, um, that you discuss how um, it's quite a bit cheaper uh, to have a compensation system um, that you talk about Canada and Australia and, and some of the differences there. C- can you just walk, walk me through that? Okay, so uh, back in 2018, uh, Health Canada released an expert panel report. And in that report, uh, they said that it costs on average about two to four times as much to collect plasma without compensating donors than with compensating donors. And that seems strange because if you're not paying donors, then presumably that's a savings. But it isn't a savings, right? It isn't a savings because both the compensated and the non-compensated plasma collection centers, they both rely on similar numbers of staff. And so they have similar employee costs. They have similar infrastructure costs. They have to pay for the chairs. They have to pay for the machines. They have to pay rent. They have to pay to keep the lights on and so on. They pay for all of these uh, different things. But at a compensated center, the average number of like the average number of leaders that you collect in the United States is something like 50 to 60,000 liters per year. In Canada, the comparable number is something like 12,000 liters per year. So if you take the fixed costs and you divide them by the volume of plasma that you collect per year, you get the result that on average it will cost something like, let's say, $150 per liter to collect plasma while paying donors whereas it will cost something like $400 per liter to collect that plasma uh, in a non-compensated center. So the differences are pretty stark. It is like two to four times more expensive. And is that because people aren't going as often or that uh, it costs more money to get people to go in? Like, do you know what the source of the, the difference is, like given that all the infrastructure is held fixed? Yeah. If you pay people, people become regular and frequent plasma donors. If you don't pay people, they will donate once or twice a year. Right? Gotcha. Maybe three or four times. I mean, in yeah. Quebec, I think it's something like three point something times per year. But in the United States, the average plasma donor donates something like 13 or 14 times per year. That's a big difference. You also don't really have to spend a lot of money on marketing and advertising if you're paying people. Like they will just go ahead and tell their friends about it. They will go ahead and just keep going back. But in Canada, we have to pay for, you know, people who make phone calls. And those phone calls are like, hey, listen, can you please come and donate? And then people are like, yeah, sure. And then they don't show up. A lot of, a lot of, you know, you say you're going to go and then you go, ah, you know, I'm busy. And then you don't go. But if you pay people, they will come back frequently. Yeah. Canadian Blood Services calls a lot. I can... Uh, tell you that if you go there once. <laughs> There's a lot of text messages. <laughs> well, they have to pay for that, yeah. right? So, like, one one way of looking at it is: Do you want to spend the money and give it to the people whose plasma it is, or do you want to spend it on, like, I don't know, a, a marketing company that will go ahead and make all these phone calls or whatever? Like, I mean, you're spending that money one way or the other. The more efficient route is to just give the money to donors. That seems to be the most effective. Um, okay, so I have some questions about objections that you hear. Um, so I guess to start, what, what is the most common objection that you hear to paying people and what's wrong with that objection? Yeah, okay, great. So um, it depends on who I'm speaking with, 
So amongst philosophers, I think the most frequent and common objection is going to be the exploitation objection. So amongst professional ethicists and professionals in general, uh, they're going to worry that paying donors for plasma donation um, constitutes or leads to exploitation of the donors. <clears throat> if you go to Europe and you look at policymakers in Europe, the primary objection is going to be about altruism and community solidarity. So for historical reasons, countries like France and Italy, uh, they emphasize the extent to which non-remunerated uh, blood and plasma donations are altruistic and contribute to community solidarity. In fact, some of these countries call them solidarity donations which kind of hints at what they consider to be uh, really important. There's a subset of people who are going to object on the grounds of commodification, right? And then those grounds would just be like, look, you can't commodify the body. I think, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly which groups, but uh, I've seen those objections quite often. Sure. So, so can we dig into the exploitation one? So, so this is one I hear from my students a lot um, as well, that um, it's exploitative, um, it's taking advantage of people unfairly in some way. Um, so how do you respond? What, what is the, uh, what's the case against that worry? Yeah, so um, obviously you know that there are many different theories of wrongful exploitation and that it's a little bit complicated, but a sort of general catch-all sort of exploitation theory would be something like undue risk, undue inducement, or an unfair division of the benefits from trade. So first we'll worry about whether or not the thing that someone is doing is risky and whether or not they're getting paid enough for that risk. Second of all, we don't want people to donate plasma if it's a health risk to them, but they feel pressure because they need money, for example. That's a common uh, concern. Um, you want people to make decisions that are at least consistent with their own health, especially in a healthcare context. And then the third one is just like, well, how much money is the company making as compared with the donor? And is that division uh, fair? So let's address those. First of all, plasma donation is not risky. It's not a big deal. Talk to Canadian Blood Services. Ask them. They'll tell you it's a safe procedure and donating plasma is safe. Right. It's a it's not particularly risky. I've done it. I don't know if you've uh, donated plasma, Eric, have you or just blood? No, I actually even donating blood is tough for me. I've got these uh, veins that they, that never seem oh, to no. work. So I've, so I've tried like six or seven times and now they've just given up on me. Um, but so I have to you know, <laughs> well, be, be altruistic. I, I can't. There's a way I can't make money or, uh, you know, can't uh, be altruistic. <laughs> Well, I'm proud to say I have terrific veins, <laughs> so I don't have I don't have that Not problem. Your problem. I, have a, yeah, I have a different problem, which is I'm I'm liable to faint. So I used to, you know, when I was in Canada, I used to go to the Oshawa. Uh, what was it called? The mall in Oshawa. I can't believe I'm blanking on Oshawa Center. I guess it was called. So I would donate blood there to Canadian Blood Services. And then every single time the nurses would be like, are you sure you can do this? Because I would go white and I'd like almost pass out. And indeed, the last time I donated plasma here locally in Maryland for money, I got money for it, right? Um, I nearly passed out as well. So I am, 
I'm a fainter. But there's a new machine, by the way, on the horizon coming out very soon or already present that takes the amount of time that it takes to donate plasma down from the current 45 minutes that you're sitting in the chair um, down to about 30, maybe 25 to 30 minutes. And I think that's going to make all the difference uh, for somebody uh, like me. So there isn't a risk involved in donating plasma, even relatively frequently. There might be a risk associated with donating the maximum frequency allowed in a country like the United States, Canada, or Egypt. Those are the three countries that allow twice weekly donations up to a maximum of 104 times uh, per year. Those, are, those kinds of frequencies, less than 1% of donors in the United States donate at those rates. And then it'll depend on, you know, your levels of proteins and a number of other factors. There could be some risks involved there, but like I said, less than 1% of Americans do it. And even if that was a reason not to pay donors or something like that, there's a legislative solution. In Europe, you can donate plasma once a week at most, right? Or once every two weeks at most. Canadian blood services policies is, I think, once every two weeks or it's possibly once once a week. So you can have a legislative solution to that one if that's the only obstacle. In terms of an inducement, you get about $50. I mean, nowadays, post-pandemic, the average in the United States is something like $65 to $80 per donation. Is that such an inducement that you would completely ignore your own health in order to do this thing? I think sometimes yes, but I think rarely yes. We can compare plasma donation and the amount of money that you get from that to, you know, I mean, medical research. We pay people for that too. Or, you know, being a crab person, you know, someone who catches crab. That's a dangerous profession. Or, or these Alaska truck drivers. That's a super dangerous profession, um, but we allow it. It's much more risky than donating plasma. I just don't think it's too much of an inducement. That's all. And then the most important one, I think, in terms of the division of the benefits from trade. Look, a lot of people are confused. Yes, the final therapy, like immunoglobulin, is one of the top 10 most expensive therapies in the world. You're going to pay over $10,000 per year in order to have access to that therapy. It's enormously uh, expensive. What people don't realize, however, is it's, that doesn't come from one donor. It's not like one donor gives you a year's worth of supply of immunoglobulin. No, absolutely not. We need about 1,300 donations of plasma in order to meet the needs of just one patient for one year. 1,300 get mixed together. The process of making immunoglobulin takes 12 months. In, in facilities that cost upwards of a billion dollars to open in the first place, with many employees working there, okay? So the best way to understand it is ignore all of those complicated things and understand the non-vertically integrated plasma collection centers. Those are centers that collect plasma in order to sell just the raw plasma to the fractionators who then turn it into therapies. The average global price of a liter of American plasma is $230. That's it. $230 for a liter of plasma. Like I said, the average compensation for a donation is $65 to $80, from which you get something like 800 milliliters. That means that to get up to a liter... Um, you will pay a donor somewhere on the order of like $90 to $100. 
90 to $100 compared to $230, that's the total revenue per liter of plasma, that's almost half. That's almost half of the revenue that the company gets. The profit is less than what the donor receives in compensation. I don't know what theory of fairness people are using, but that seems incredibly fair to me, right? Me as a professor, you as a professor, you get less <laughs> of the like tuition dollars that are paid. I mean, you're in Canada, so like tuition dollars plus subsidies, right? <laughs> you get less per student than a plasma donor gets for their plasma. So I, I, don't, I actually don't understand how somebody could make a case on the unfair division of the benefits from trade unless they're unaware of the details and how much money the companies are making from the plasma. There's kind of a narrow band. I mean, I've written about this, that if uh, that on the one hand, if we pay people too much, I think that th this comes up in research ethics a lot as well, that if we pay people too much, it is undue inducements. Um, and but if we take pay people too little, it's exploitative. But it's you know there's like this weird feature that if you keep paying people less and less and less to avoid undue inducement, um, then that gets worse until it's zero when they're doing it for free, and then it's totally fine because they're voluntarily doing it. Um, so it, it, like is it is there another uh, like how should we think about the pricing? I guess besides just the like profit uh, that the company is making versus what the individual is getting, is there like a uh, should there be like a minimum wage for it? Or like if it went substantially lower or higher, would, would you have an issue with that? Um, a couple of things to say. First of all, I think there's a Goldilocks paper to be written here. I don't think it would be plausible, but I'll just mention it for any graduate students that might be listening to this podcast. The paper would argue that um, you can't pay for plasma precisely because if you pay enough to avoid um, the objection that it's an unfair division of the benefits uh, from trade, then immediately it becomes an undue inducement. So there isn't like a, a perfect sum of money that would work there. So that's a paper that could be written. Like I said, I don't think it's gonna, I don't think it's going to work. And I'd love to write a rejoinder, a response to that paper. But nevertheless, it would be an interesting paper uh, to write. Um, yeah. Uh, now that I've said that, Eric, you'll have to repeat your question. Did I answer it already or was there a, another part to it? Well, I, I, I mean, maybe this is just a broader question about um, payment for any of these things um, that this comes up in other contexts. But, you know, when I hear the amount that people get paid for plasma, um, I think you said 50 to $75, um, so, something like that in that range. Um, I, I sometimes have a hard time like I, I'm not sure what the kind of like process should be for thinking about whether that's appropriate or not. It seems to me going lower than that would be, um, you know, would be bad in a one way. But of course, you know, the the worry about undue inducement is that if you go much a lot higher than than that could kind of uh, that could go in the other direction. So, um, it, it, you know, but besides just like the market rate, um, is there any kind of other factors that we should add to figure out? Um, you know, how do we settle on the right price for stuff like this? I mean, the way that I think about this issue is the most important thing is making sure that we have enough medicine to save lives. So that's like the, and all these concerns, look, I would be concerned about exploitation much more so if this was a big deal. If we were talking about kidneys, for example, we would have a, I think, a fundamentally different conversation. But too much of the worries about exploitation in the context of plasma donation, I think, relies on 
either people not understanding what the process is like, how risky it is, how threatening it is, or maybe they're like enthralled <laughs> or they are in the grips of some kind of metaphor, right? Like the metaphor is like, ah, the blood, it is me, right? We have historical traditional stories that um, associate individuals with their blood, right? Um, <laughs> I think, is it Japan or Korea? I'm not sure which, but they, uh, you know, we do... Um, horoscopes, well, they have blood types that tell you something about who you are as a person and your blood type tells you who you are as a person. So how much should we pay people? Well, I mean, whatever we should pay them, $50 is more than enough to meet the needs of patients. And $50 seems fair to me. I mean, it almost feels a little bit like a, like a windfall, right? I mean, here's, here's an analogy. Suppose we figured out some use for our fingernails. Right. Suppose that like we discovered that there's some protein in people's fingernails that can be used as a therapy, right? And now suppose that there are these fingernail cutting healthcare centers, like salons, right? Like nail cutting salons, but they actually take the fingernails and they use them for medical purposes. And now they will give you a manicure and a pedicure, except they will pay you, you won't pay them, right? Um, are we thinking like, oh no, that's exploitation? Or are we thinking like, oh great, right? Like, yay, a windfall. Like we all just make fingernails. It's not like I'm doing anything to make them. And now I can be paid for fingernails and get them cut and it'll be really nice. And sure enough, every once in a while, somebody cuts your cuticle. Every once in a while, you will bleed because they will cut you instead of the fingernail or something like that. Like things will happen, but that would seem more like a windfall to me than anything else. I mean, if the amount of money was something like $5 for an hour, then I think, you know, and if the sum of money that the company was making was similar or identical to what they're making now, then we could raise, but I think they are comfortably within a reasonable range of payment. And so what we need to do is adjust the payment to ensure that we have enough for patients. That's what I think. My question about the, um, so you, you often retweet people who have gone and, and donated plasma for money um, and you know, to kind of, I think, like painting a picture of, of the, the sorts of folks and, you know, and there's actually like quite a, like <laughs> quite a group of people online who talk about that they did it and, you know, using it for different purposes. Um, I, I think that like the, there's like maybe a, a false dichotomy in how these people are often presented or, you know, once again, when I tell my students about this, um, they'll describe somebody who's like a, I don't know, Scrooge kind of person, like they would sell anything to just, um, you know, make a quick buck um, or that they're the opposite. You know, they're just like totally um, in the grips of exploitation or the coercion or something. Um, so what is your, you know, you were involved in this community, you know it really well, like, like, who are these people? And like, what is your perception of um of the, the sorts of choices that they're making and, you know, kind of, if you could like paint like an average picture of, of them, what, what are they like? Right. So um, I think for the most part, we don't have enough studies to sort of figure that out. We do have one that suggests that plasma donation centers appear in poor parts of the United States, right? Whereas if you look at plasma donation centers in Canada and in other places where they don't compensate people, now you're talking about upper middle class professional um, areas, right? And it's, sort of middle class and upper middle class people who donate blood and plasma without being paid for it and poorer people who donate plasma. Um, yeah, I think part of the debate, I like that you put it as like Scrooge on the one hand, so selfish, 
And then the other one, I would describe them, call them like down and outers or something like that. So the depiction or the stereotype of the average plasma donor in the United States who has paid for it, they're either like a selfish Scrooge or they're a desperate down and outer. That's, that's sort of the stereotype. Part of my mission in retweeting these people and thanking people for donating plasma and getting paid for it is, um, you know, I'm part of a number of people who are attempting to eliminate some of the stigma associated with donating plasma and getting paid for it. Right. There is, I think, a kind of social stigma surrounding it. I think it's a negative and bad stigma. I think we need to change the culture uh, to sort of celebrate uh, people who donate plasma, even when they get paid for that plasma. Uh, many people donate plasma and get paid for it, but aren't interested in the money, right? Maybe initially because it's so unusual and people don't think about it, and, and partly, I think, uh, because of the stigma surrounding it, uh, you know, people who are middle class or upper middle class, they don't want to participate in this because they think it's something that poor people do and desperate people do. So it's kind of gauche or like, ew, right? Like they don't want to do it for that reason. But I think we need to change it. And if we were to change it so that the public perception was different, then I think a different group of people would make their way to the plasma donation center. And good, right? And, and that would be a good thing too. Uh, and that's the way I think uh, that we should solve that particular issue or that particular problem to the extent that it's, uh, that it's a problem. But of course, you and I both recognize and everyone recognizes that it's possible to pay people and for them to do it, not for the sake of the payment, but for the sake of the good that it does. Because actually plasma donations, compensated plasma donations save lives. So it's because that is a fact, it's possible for someone like you, like myself, to be like, oh, I'm gonna do this because it has this effect of saving lives. Yeah, they're like, here's a hundred bucks. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Like consider that once upon a time, we didn't pay nurses, right? Once upon a time, nurses were only volunteers. And unsurprisingly, we didn't have enough of them. And so the people that proposed paying nurses, we had these objections too. People were like, oh, well, we don't want selfish nurses. And we don't want desperately poor nurses either. What we want is people who choose the nursing profession because that's their passion, because they are passionate about saving lives and so on. But nowadays, we don't even think about that. Like uh, the perception of nurses isn't like selfish Scrooges or down and outers, uh, desperate people who decide to like go into this for the sake of the money alone. No, we think that nurses are altruistic, but they receive a salary, right? But we go, yeah, yeah, okay, yes. So do professors, so do so many different professions. And we don't associate compensation or payment with selfish motives in those contexts. Just in these kinds of weird contexts, we associate those things. And, and I think the more common it becomes, and it will become more common in Canada, by the way, uh, the more likely it is that over time, we're gonna be like, oh yeah, this is something that like uh, people do out of the kindness of their heart, and they get a few dollars for it, but that's, you know, that's fine. Thinking about other markets that we might have, you mentioned kidneys or bone marrow um, or other things. Um, how does the argument change? Like, what else do we need to add in? Or um, obviously, the um, the specifics of collection and so on are going to be different. But but what else needs to be different to if we were going to look at a market for kidneys, say? So if we are focusing, so it would be more complicated, I think, to make the case for uh, payment for kidneys. It would be more complicated because now we're talking about a very serious procedure. 
And so we do want people to go into it fully informed. There, there are a number of steps that we could take to like fix many of these things, but we do want them to go into it fully informed. And I think we definitely want them to consider their own health as much as possible. For people who work in bioethics like you do, like I do as well, um, it's really important that the, you know, that the people who participate in the healthcare system um, either benefit from it directly or go into it fully knowledgeable with like very good consent. Um, and so the fact that like some people might donate their kidney out of a desperate need for money, that's a bit of a problem. One bit of hope here is the case of surrogacy, commercial surrogacy. So people who are paid uh, to carry babies for others uh, most recently, and I, I'm sorry, I forget the name, but there was a study done uh, in the United States on who the surrogates are and what their motives are and how the companies operate. And it turns out that the vast majority of surrogates in the United States are not poor women, desperate for money, as was assumed back when Elizabeth Anderson was writing about this uh, in the 1990s and so on. Instead, it's firmly middle class and upper middle class women who have children of their own, who are college educated, who participate in the surrogacy uh, industry. The companies themselves take a lot of steps in order to defer or like uh, uh, remove uh, women who are doing it for the sake of money alone or women who are doing it precisely because they really need the money. So the process whereby you get to become a surrogate takes a really long time. And because it takes such a long time, then automatically the people that are in desperate need for money tomorrow, right, don't get to participate in that industry. Okay. I think something similar might happen on the side of kidneys as well. So I think the more significant the medical procedure is that we're asking the donor to do, the more safety steps we would have to take prior to allowing it to happen. But in all of these cases, I think the allergy that we have to financial uh, payments seems, I mean, it just, it does seem to me like it's overwrought and people wring their hands way too much. Like consider what's at stake on the other side, right? We do have hundreds of thousands of people waiting for a kidney and they are going to die, right? On the other side, we are letting people die. This is what we're doing. We're letting people die in order to avoid using financial incentives to get people to participate in this, to donate either kidneys or plasma or bone marrow or other things. We're letting people die in order to avoid financial incentives because we have a theory that says that the use of financial incentives is going to lead to exploitation or, or harm to donors. Now, harm to donors is, a, I think, a very significant concern to raise here. I think that's, that's a reason to sort of think long and hard about this. But like exploitation or commodification, like how does that weigh against human lives, right? I say this often, but like, you know, I mentioned the altruism and solidarity point that policymakers in, in Europe especially uh, make. But like the point of a system of plasma collection or bone marrow collection or what have you is to make sure that we collect enough to meet the needs of patients. The point of the system is not to give you or me an opportunity to express our altruism. The point of this, the point of this system is not to like stitch us together as a community to, to, for the sake of solidarity or something like that, right? That's not the point. So yeah, if you're collecting enough, then we can talk about altruism and solidarity and all these other things. 
But if you are not collecting enough, what is all this talk about altruism and solidarity, right? Like plasma collection, blood collection is not an altruism program. It's not a solidarity program. We don't start collecting blood and plasma because we're like, ah, we need some way for people to prove that they're altruistic. Oh, we need some way to stitch our community together. Let's bleed into a bucket, right? Because that's where this would go. Like, why not just have people bleed into a bucket for the sake of community solidarity? And then maybe we'll use the bucket of blood for some useful purpose, but maybe we'll throw it away. That's not what it's for. Right. So if we're not collecting enough, we're failing the primary moral point of having the system in the first place. And I think that's an objection that, that, that people need to recognize and deal with. Canada is not collecting enough plasma. That's a moral failing on the part of Canada. That's not like, a, oh, geez, shucks, you know, the world is as it is. No, we're, we know what will increase plasma donation in Canada. We're just not doing it. Right. We should be doing it. And in fact, uh, to the benefit of Canadian Blood Services, they've just created a partnership with uh, a plasma collection company from Spain called Griffles that will allow this to happen. They are moving forward in the way that, you know, I've recommended patient organizations in Canada have recommended uh, going back at least six years. So they are creating this partnership. They are going to do it. And I think it's going to be successful. But that's the primary point. And like, it's weird that Italy is like, oh, no, then we, we won't have solidarity. I mean, look, there's so many different ways to stitch your community together. You could have a soccer game, right? Like, a, yay, Italia or whatever, right? So many different ways to like express our altruism, make a sandwich for someone who's hungry, wear a t-shirt that says, uh, you know, altruism is good. You know, hold somebody's hand, tell, tell your parents you love them, tell your family you love them. There's just so many different ways to express our, it's not like we're running out of spaces for altruism. There isn't like a scarcity, like give me a break, right? So then why are we so focused on this one space and its connection with altruism or, or solidarity, right? Yeah. What, what do you think is the best objection to, to payment? Like what's the one that you think is the strongest? Uh, okay, great. Okay, so the, the best objection to paying people for plasma donation is that uh, we're going to see a decrease in non-compensated blood and plasma donation. So this objection used to be described as crowding. Canadian Blood Services would prefer to describe this as encroachment. And I, I like the way Canadian Blood Services describes it. So the fear is that like, if you open a pay for plasma center, you know, on the corner of whatever, Bloor and Young or something like that, and there's a pre-existing blood donation center, you know, a block away, uh, people are going to prefer to sell their plasma rather than donate blood, and then we'll have less blood. I think that's basically the best, uh, most interesting and most worrisome objection to the proposal that I endorse. But there are so many easy fixes. There's also, you know, I've done a study in Canada and the United States, and according to, the, to that study that we did, uh, myself and my colleague, uh, William English, who's also a professor, uh, at the McDonough School of Business, uh, we found that compensated plasma opportunities, right, donation opportunities, had no effect. In fact, they had a small positive effect on non-compensated blood donations um, at Canadian Blood Services places, as well as in the United States too. So we didn't see this concern uh, realize. Uh, 
Lots of people have this objection, but then when I ask them, I'm like, okay, well, suppose there was a pay plasma center opening up right next to the place where you donate blood. Are you gonna, are you gonna sell your plasma or are you gonna donate your blood? And then these people say, well, no, that's not for me. I'm concerned about other people, not myself, right? So we didn't see this empirically, but suppose it does show up empirically. There's so many easy solutions. Like you have a kind of catchment area you say you can't, you know, these two different centers, like they have to be at least 20 kilometers apart or something like that, or 30 kilometers apart. That's an easy solution to the problem. We also don't need as much blood as we need uh, plasma. And by the way, footnote, because somebody might respond by saying, well, then why don't we just go ahead and pay for blood? Something we haven't mentioned before, because um, one of the best objections to paying people for plasma back in the 1990s would be a safety concern. Namely, you're going to attract a certain group of people who, who, um, who are more likely to have HIV or hepatitis B or C or, or one of the other transfusion transmissible infections that are of concern. They might also lie on the uh, questionnaire that, that they are asked um, at the beginning uh, for purposes of deferring them. That is not a concern when it comes to plasma protein therapies. Yes, they still have a donor questionnaire. Yes, we want people to be honest. However, when we are collecting plasma to make these therapies, we can run them through a series of um, pathogen removal and pathogen inactivation steps, like solvents detergents, like nanofiltration, uh, like UV uh, lights and, and uh, pasteurization. We can heat treat it and so on. And those are effective against like many of the pathogens that might be present in uh, blood or plasma. We can't yet do that when it comes to blood for uh, transfusion or plasma for transfusion. So the safety steps of asking donors questionnaires about you know, their past habits and what they've done in the past matters a great deal more when it comes to transfusion than it, than it does uh, for the manufacture of plasma therapies. And so um, we can't yet pay people for blood until we get these pathogen inactivation steps uh, going in those places. That's coming very soon, in which case my position is going to change. As soon as we have pathogen inactivation, then the solution is to pay people for blood donations too. Great. Um, can I ask you a couple of non-plasma questions? Of course. <laughs> okay. So, uh, uh, behind you, you've got your uh, co-authored book, Business Ethics for Better Behavior. Uh, I, so I work as an ethics consultant. I've read almost every non-academic business ethics style book. Almost all of them are very bad. Um, why is there like the market for business ethics um, for actual business people? Um, like they're, they're just, it does not seem that that market has been filled. Your book is excellent. Why are there so few other books that are um, like, like it seems like this should not be a, um, uh, you know, a, a market that hasn't been filled yet. So, so like what, what's going on? What's the story? Well, first of all, thank you for the review of the book. I appreciate that very much. Uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I think it goes like this. So when we were writing the book, we had those questions too. It's like another business ethics textbook. What's the point? Well, here's, here's the difference between our book and many others. We incorporate not just philosophy and ethics, um, even though we are all of us philosophers. Uh, we also do moral psychology. We do behavioral economics. Um, 
and uh, a lot of economics as well. And it's the it's adding all of those things together that makes this book, uh, Business Ethics for Better Behavior, uh, different from many of the others. Lots of business ethics textbooks are written by philosophers who do the following sort of thing. They go, here's Aristotle's view, here's virtue ethics, da 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 And then they're like, here's an issue. What would a virtue ethicist say about this? Here's utilitarianism. John Stuart Mill said, Jeremy Bentham said, whatever, da 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 da, da. Here's the theory. And then they take the same case and then they're like, well, what would a virtue ethicist say? What would a utilitarian say? What would a Kantian say? You know, that kind of thing, right? That's the sort of model. And I'm not sure, uh, I think that's like really interesting, especially since I'm a philosopher, that's more interesting to me than some of the other approaches to these kinds of issues. But I don't think that's the way that like students think about these um, or others do as well. Moral psychologists will look at it in terms of biases, but they're gonna shy away from making any, um, like saying anything normative in the book, right? Similarly with behavioral economists, they're gonna be like, well, look, here are the norms. And if you want the norms to be different, uh, here's what to do to change the norms. It's like, yeah, but should I want the norms to be different? And they don't answer that question or they try to avoid that question, all the social scientists uh, do. So on the one hand, us philosophers are really happy to draw normative conclusions and to, to make a case that like they, these are the correct norms <laughs> and these are the wrong norms. So combining those things into that one book is I think what makes that book different from most of the others that are out there. It seems like um, ESG, social responsibility, the kind of business and the attention that it's um, got in business, it, it's waning perhaps just a little bit, although I, st I think that corporations are still thinking about kind of social responsibility and ethics in a way that um you know that was not the case 10 or 20 years ago um is the trend of ESG um on the rise kind of getting businesses to think about ethics in this way is that positive is that a distraction um how should we think about that as you know you know as people who are interested in ethical companies um yeah, so historically, I mean, it's interesting that we've gone from corporate social responsibility to ESG or CSR to ESG. And now I think the topic that's um, at the forefront is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? That's sort of the trend uh, within business schools and also in the wider community. Um, for the most part, I think it's positive for companies to at least seriously consider ethics. And it's really nice. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been teaching for a while. And when I started at Georgetown, my students were like, ethics? What? <laughs> What's the point of this? And what's different about students today is ethics. Well, obviously, this is like necessary. We need to have these conversations. I think that's a dramatic shift that I think is in general uh, positive. As for these different trends that are trendy, I sometimes worry about the extent that they crowd out or encroach upon uh, other kinds of considerations. Um, I don't think we talk enough about poverty in our classes and the extent to which businesses can play a role in alleviating poverty. I think we don't talk enough about how entrepreneurship can be a way to solve uh, moral problems. Um, when I talk about entrepreneurship in my classes, the way that I describe it is it's not like coming up with solutions in order to make more money. That might be true too, but it's like you're trying to come up with a solution that solves a problem for people to make their lives better and to make the world a little bit 
of a better place. So insofar as these things detract from some of these other considerations, then I worry about it. But insofar as they bring ethical considerations to the forefront of business, I think that's a good thing. So one nice thing about it is that companies are taking these things very seriously. Um, it's a separate question to what extent these things are the equivalent of greenwashing, right? So you just have, you, uh, my biggest concern is that these things are slogans and nothing substantive comes behind them. So you, you have a poster that says, you know, whatever, whatever that poster, the environment matters, right? And then, you know, the executives are like, well, we've done our job. We've got that poster and we've got a couple of tchotchkes. We have a, a mug that says, you know, equality is key or equality is important. Um, you know, we have, a, we have a booklet that says, oh, around here, ethics matters a lot. Well, we've done our job. It's all done. It's all, it's all over. So I worry to what extent these things are like branding exercises, marketing exercises without something substantive behind them. But to the extent that there's something substantive behind them, I think it's really good that companies are thinking about ethics in a very real way. Great. Peter Jaworski, thank you so much. Eric Matheson, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. That's Peter Jaworski. He's an associate teaching professor at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. Value Judgments is produced by me, Eric Matheson. If you like the show, please tell your friends and subscribe at valuejudgments.substack.com. If you really like the show, you can become a paid subscriber at valuejudgments.substack.com. Take care. Take care.